Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom everyone. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, and this is the commentary called Exegeting Galatians. It's a Messianic Jewish commentary. I wrote the commentary, and I'll be the presenter through the entire course of the commentary. The teaching itself is about an hour long, and we're going to go for 10 weeks, and then take a break for two weeks, and then go for 10 weeks, and take a break for 10 weeks. So we're at week number five. Let's date stamp this teaching tonight. It is Wednesday, November 11th, 2015, on my side of the world, 2015. And for most of you, though, it's probably Tuesday night, November 10th, 2015. Let's open with a word of prayer. We'll do some Greek and Hebrew liturgy, and then we'll jump into the study, okay? Let's pray. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we bless you tonight, and we're excited for what you're doing in our lives, in our midst, in our families, in our communities. We thank you for sending your Son, Yeshua. We thank you for sending the poured out Spirit, the promise that because of what Yeshua has done, we can be reminded of the words of the Master through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the promised Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you are drawing us close to you. Thank you that you are filling us with your goodness and with your mercy, and that you're challenging us to press deeper, to climb up higher, to walk a, a more perfect standard as we seek to be more Christ-like. Thank you, Lord, that you are empowering us to walk and to lead sanctified lives. We are not walking under the power of our own flesh. Rather, we are leading our lives according to the power of the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your light in our life. Bless us tonight, Lord, as we seek to study the text afresh. Uh, open the words to us. Cause us to um, have a greater appreciation for the truth. Um, cause us to have a, a, a retention of what we're learning, what we're studying. We thank you for this great epistle to the Galatians. We thank you that Paul was so moved, so stirred to pen these words because they are indeed pertinent for our lives today. Help us today to be a witness to those around us. Help us to not forget, but to remember that many, many of those uh, that we encounter, the people that we encounter, do not yet have a genuine and lasting relationship with Yeshua. To be sure, they probably have never heard the good news. Give us the opportunity to speak the words of the good news to them and give us boldness in our speech. 
protect us from the adversary, mask us, and camouflage us from evil men, from the schemes and the wickedness of evil men. And Lord, we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory that is due your name. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, well, we have just been chugging along in our uh, study to the book of Galatians. We're really only in the preface. Um, so before we get started into the commentary, let me go ahead and read some liturgy. I'll read some Hebrew, and then I'll read some Greek. And uh, I don't think liturgy will be long tonight, so just listen along. My Hebrew selection is going to be from, uh, it'll be two passages. First passage is going to be out of the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And you'll find out why I'm reading this passage a little later on when we get talking about the commentary. Um, for the English, I'm going to be reading the 1917 Jewish Publication Society translation of the Bible, the 1917 JPS. So the English says, And the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. The Hebrew reads, Vaihulu hashamim vaharetz. Let me read verse 3 also. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because that in it he rested from all his work, which God in creating had made. And the Hebrew reads, Elohim et yom hashvi'i. And let me read another passage out of the Torah. Let's jump over this time to the book of Exodus. Give me a moment here. I'm pulling this up electronically. Exodus chapter... Let's go to Exodus chapter 31. And we'll scroll all the way down to verses, verse 16. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. And verse 17. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and rested. The Hebrew reads, that's Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17. All right, let's jump over to some Greek. I'll tell you in advance what I'm going to read. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And let me read it for you out of David Stern's complete Jewish Bible first. Or if you've got the Jewish New Testament, it's the same version. Uh, the English reads, What the Messiah has freed us for is freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't let yourselves be tied again to a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I shall tell you that if you undergo Brit Milah, the Messiah will be of no advantage to you at all. Again, I warn you, any man who undergoes Brit Milah 
is obligated to observe the entire Torah. You who are trying to be declared righteous by God through legalism have severed yourself from the Messiah. You have fallen away from God's grace. Okay, let's read the Greek. The Greek reads, Te eleutheria, hemas Christos eleutherosin, stekete un kai me palen zugo duleas in a keste. Ide egu palos lego human hati in pertimneste, Christos humas uden ophelese, marturomai de palen panti antropo. Peritemnomeno hati ophelates estin halen ton naman poesai katergetete apocristu hoitenes en namo decaiuste tes caritas exepesate. All right, and that's our liturgy for this evening. Let's recall where we've been going in the study. We're still in the preface, which itself is um, uh, about 13 pages if you printed out the entire 122, 123-page commentary on your own. And this preface portion of the Galatians study covers these 10 common objections or 10 common questions that Gentile Christians would have about keeping the Torah, about Torah observance. And so for that reason, I'm somewhat going systematically through these ten questions in an effort to kind of whet our appetite and to get us acclimated to the study itself. Because it's no secret that many in standard Christian circles, uh, be it your seminaries, to your pastors, to your average churchgoer, it's no secret that the standard view uh, taken for Paul's writing of the book of Galatians is to warn people away from trying to keep the law for the purpose of being saved, or to warn people that they're no longer under the law, or to warn the readers that to fall back to Judaism is a faulty position, or to warn people about the dangers of legalism, something along those lines. It's also no secret that if you visit your standard messianic circles, Torah communities, um, I'm assuming that most of you who are listening to my commentary, who follow me on a regular basis, probably belong to this camp and to the Messianic, what you call yourselves Messianic, or we call ourselves Torah observant, or we call ourselves part of the Torah community. We don't feel that Paul's warning us away from the Torah. We don't feel that Paul's warning us about keeping the Torah. We don't feel that Paul is warning us really about um, the dangers of keeping the law for the purpose of salvation, because we don't hold that view. We don't keep the law to become saved. We keep the law because we're saved. And so it is our joy, it is our delight to keep Torah. So in our discussion, and this is week five, uh, remember, in our discussion from last week, we looked at this question of, um, question number six, Paul says we're not saved by works of law. So if you're looking at your screen, you'll see I scrolled back up into the question just a little bit. And... Um, it was a lengthy question, a lengthy answer, I should say. And essentially what I was trying to convey was that there are two primary schools of thought when it comes to this phrase, works of law, in Paul's writings today. The first school of thought, which is about, uh, I'd say, roughly um, 
I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ballpark it. I'm gonna say it's it's roughly say 1500, 1700 years old, 1800 years old or so. In essence, it's the prevailing view of the Christian church from roughly its inception till about today. So, I mean, we could even say it's 2000 years old, right? But um, the prevailing Christian interpretation of Paul's phrase works of the law in Christian parlance today is that works of the law refers to works done in an effort to keep the law uh, the way God asks us to keep it. Um, there are some Christians who believe that God expects a perfect uh, standard of law keeping. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to encounter Christians who believe that God gave the law and that God expected people to keep it perfectly and that if they didn't keep it perfectly, well, let me back up, if they did keep it perfectly, he would save them. But since God knew that they couldn't keep it perfectly, he gave them the law to show them their sin, show them the the, uh, the futility of trying to keep the law, and therefore they would uh, eventually fall on their face and cry out, mercy for Yeshua. So that's essentially the traditional Christian view, is that works of the law refers to works or deeds done in obedience to the law. Kind of shorthand for deeds done in obedience to the law. Deeds of the law. Works of the law. However, the um, other school of thought, which itself is only about maybe 30, 40, 50 years old, at least in academic circles. In reality, the second school of thought, this other view that I'm about to describe, in my opinion, is actually the original view of works of the law. It's just that we've misunderstood Paul for 2,000 years, and now we're coming around, we're coming full circle to full, to better understand what works of law really means. So in this, <clears throat> in this second school of thought, this newer way of looking at Paul, which some Christians call the new Paul perspective, or new perspective on Paul, um, NPP view, uh, this view takes works of the law as not so much deeds done in obedience to the law, rather it is deeds done in order to gain group membership into a, a private club, so to say. It's essentially works of law is this um, a group policy, kind of a membership package, as if you will, and a person who's trying to get into this club or get into the group um, must yield or submit to this list of do's and don'ts, this list of group distinctives, this glit, this list of 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 what we might call badges of the group, or um, halakha, if you want to use the Hebrew word. So a person submits or yields to this small list to get into the group, and then once they become a member of the group, once they have been initiated into the group, and they are a, a member. Then they are given a lengthier list in order to maintain their proper standing or their right standing within the group as a, as a upstanding member, a good standing member. So works of law is Paul's way of describing this social phenomenon of getting in and staying in. It's kind of one coin with two sides. The first side is the getting in part, and the second side is the staying in part. So that works of law is a short list of commandments that are lifted out of the Torah, specifically Sabbath-keeping, um, dietary restrictions, and uh, circumcision. So let's, let's say those three, because those, those are probably the three that were in view in Paul's day that were kind of elevated above the other parts of the Torah. We take those three commandments, and um, the Judaisms of Paul's day were likely 
imposing these three requirements that were called the works of law. Those three requirements themselves kind of define the works of the law. And they were those three were kind of presented to your average Gentile who wished to get into the group known as Israel, get into the exclusive club known as Israel, to get into what was uh, defined by Paul's day as a Jewish-only club. So that if Gentiles wanted to join Israel, which was defined as Jewish-only Israel, then the Gentile had to undergo uh, the ceremony of a proselyte, that was the circumcision part, and then he had to start keeping Sabbath and kosher, and in an effort, in, in, in doing these things, in, in uh, submitting to this short list, this, this short um, package, as it were, this membership package, he gained entrance into the group, and then once he was in the group, then he took on the rest of the Torah, including the oral Torah, depending on which um, group he was joining, like if he was joining the Pharisees, or if he was joining the Sadducees, or if he was joining the Dead Sea uh, the Essene group, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, depending on which Jewish group he was joining, there might be a different uh, set of shortlist. There might be a different works of the law list, the shortlist to get into the group, and there might be a law, a different longer list to stay in the group. Um, it's no different than say joining a church is today. So if you go church shopping, as it were, if you were say, uh, um, let's say you were not a Christian and you suddenly became interested in joining a church, and you went church shopping. Let's say you went to the market of churches, and so you're scrolling down, you're strolling down the aisles, and you've got um, your various denominations that are all available to you. Well, each denomination is going to have its own specific bylaws, its own specific um, rules, to, membership package to get into their church, firstly. And then once you get into the group, they're going to have their own list of membership bylaws, a packet, a membership packet that they give to you that give you the other lengthy laws, uh, bylaws, uh, rules that govern staying in the group. And if you violate, if you repeatedly violate those bylaws, then you risk being kicked out of the group or what do we say, excommunicated from the church or whatnot. So it's kind of the same phenomenon that was going on in the first century. You had competing Jewish groups, competing Jewish sects, uh, competing Jewish um, denominations, if you were. Um, there wasn't really this one big monolithic Judaism that many people describe. Rather, there were a bunch of competing little Judaisms. That's why I keep using the word Judaism in plural. And so it's these Judaisms that, on the one hand, they, had, they shared some commonalities. They all, for the most part, believed that they were, uh, that they were, that they comprised uh, the people of Israel, that they were Jewish only, uh, that they were doing God's will as they walked out his Torah on the earth and things like that. But when it came to Gentiles, essentially the the entry point from the world of the Gentiles into the world of Judaism or the world of the Jews, the entry point, the doorway to pass from one side to the other was marked by Jewish identity circumcision, as it were, which was shorthand for Jewish identity. So if you think about it, if you think about this view of works of the law, from the Jewish perspective, you were born into the covenant. You were born into Jewish identity, or you married into Jewish identity. In other words, it wasn't something that you had to work to get to. It was from your perspective, albeit misguided. It was grace. 
it was election. God elected you based on the covenants given to your forefathers. It was simply the family heritage that was passed on to you. It was your heritage. It was your 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 family upbringing. You were Jews by nature is the language that we find in the New Testament. And in fact, we're going to find Paul using this language in Galatians. We, we're Jews by nature. Perhaps it's his words. Perhaps it's the words of his detractors. So <clears throat> essentially, that's the overview from last week. Works of the law in my studies is best understood not as mere mechanical um, merit theology. It wasn't that Paul's Judaisms were thinking that if they kept the Torah X, Y, Z, 1, 2, 3 perfectly, that God was going to save them. Instead, they really felt that they were already saved, if we can use church lingo. They felt that they were saved because they were Jews. Rather, they kept the Torah to maintain their position in the covenant that God gave to them. To be sure, the Torah, um, the Torah teaches that if you repeatedly violate certain parts of the Torah, then on the whole, uh, God has the right to kick you out of the group. Now remember, the only way to make sense of Paul's writings is to understand that covenant membership from God's perspective exists on two levels. There is the limited slash earthly level, what we might call the natural level, the natural covenant membership, and that type of um, covenant membership is earned or gained or appropriated simply by being born Jewish or joining the people of Israel on a natural level. Uh, it does not entail any spiritual benefits. Rather, it uh, carries with it many numerous natural blessings. In other words, if you keep these commandments, there will be natural blessings that follow. So on that level, Jewish people are in fact born into that covenant position. They do not have to earn that position. God graciously granted that position to them on a natural level, on, a, um, on an earthly level, as it were, on a limited, what you call, fleshly level. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a natural covenant member. Uh, again, that is entirely, um, that's entirely, uh, uh, what do we say, it's, it's natural, it's, it's, um, it's normal, it's, it's normal to think that way if you're a Jewish person. If you're a Jewish person today, you are born into your covenant position on a natural level, you are national Israel. You are natural Israel. You are Israel according to the flesh, and there's nothing wrong with that position. However, by comparison, there is another level of covenant membership that is described in the Bible, and this is personal slash spiritual slash heavenly slash eternal. And that covenant membership is not given automatically. It's not automatically granted to just because you're Jewish. This other level of covenant membership that God recognizes that's described in the Bible is only granted to those who graduate towards genuine and lasting faith in God, which equates to putting your faith in His Son, Jesus. Once you trust in the Messiah, you then acquire, in addition to your natural covenant membership if you're Jewish, you then also acquire lasting, genuine and lasting covenant membership on a spiritual level, on a personal level. And then you join spiritual Israel, and you, you have membership in both clubs, as it were. You have natural membership and you have spiritual membership. And they don't cancel out each other. They don't compete with one another. They don't, um, they don't displace one another. Rather, they complement one another. And so that's the ideal position to be in. That's the, uh, that's the uh, expected result of 
following out the Torah is that you would graduate, that you would matriculate towards faith in Yeshua. Because that's how God designed the Torah to lead you. The Torah is designed to lead you to the teacher of righteousness. Paul's going to go on and teach that explicitly later on in the book of Galatians. And we're going to study that. So that's the best way to understand the Torah. And it's the best way, in my opinion, <laughs> to um, understand Paul's uses of the words Torah and uh, covenant membership. There are two levels of covenant membership, and Paul's recognizing that Jewish people who were born into the covenant on a natural level already have one type of covenant membership, but that first type of covenant membership will not save them. They must, in fact, appropriate genuine faith in Yeshua if they wish to carry their limited, earthly, natural covenant membership into the next level, into the age to come, into the spiritual level, if they wish to take it up a notch, as it were. And in fact, if they wish to be blessed into, um, into eternity, because your spiritual blessings will follow you into the world to come, whereas the earthly blessings are going to stop, they're going to cease once you stop living. Once you die, you're, you're no longer a member of Israel. Once you're dead, your membership ceases, right? But if you have lasting covenant membership in Israel via Yeshua, and only through Yeshua, then your covenant membership does not cease when you die. In fact, it just goes on, it continues on, and the blessings continue on. Amen? Amen. So, works of the law, when you're reading through Paul's writings, and you're going to find works of the law showing up in Romans as well as Galatians, works of the law is better understood not as mere merit theology like the church is teaching. It's not that Israel was trying to work their way into heaven. Instead, they already felt they had earned covenant membership. In other words, they already felt they were saved through being Jewish. They So the Judaisms of Paul's, they were confusing lasting covenant membership with, uh, I'm sorry, they were confusing their limited covenant membership in Israel with lasting covenant membership in heaven. They felt that because God had elected them as Jewish people and that God had chosen their forefathers after them to make covenants with them, they felt that that alone warranted a place in the world to come. Remember, in Paul's day, um, the concept of heaven was not very well defined, as it were, at least not systematically the way we have it in, in church circles today. Instead, the primary um, discussions centered on group membership instead of personal salvation. So in the first century, if you were to walk up to your average Jew and ask him, hey, are you saved? They might scratch their head and say, huh? What do you mean am I saved? Versus today, if you walk up to your average person, even Jewish or Gentile or otherwise, as a Christian, if you ask them, hey, are you saved? There's more of a chance, a better chance that they're going to understand that you're talking about personal salvation. Rather, in first century Israel, it's more likely that you should approach them and say, hey, do you have membership to a people group? Are you a member of a people group? And they're going to say, okay, yeah, of course, I'm a member of Israel. So that's the better way to understand works of the law. That's our primer from last week. Now, moving from question six into question seven, if you look at the screen... I'm scrolling down to question seven, and today we're going to hit question seven, eight, and nine. There are three questions, and they're they're relatively short. And I think I should be able to cover them in the next 30 minutes quite easily without going too fast. All right, question seven. Doesn't Romans 14 teach that Sabbath-keeping is optional? Um, let me do what I did last week, and I think I'll adopt this format for the entire study if I can. What I will do is go ahead and read... The, the, the section, like read a, a paragraph in the commentary, and then I'll turn around and expound or explain what the um, commentary means 
And that way I think we'll have a better chance of continuing to understand what I'm trying to say here, if it's not already self-explanatory. So, question, doesn't Romans 14 teach that Sabbath keeping is optional? Answer, space does not permit me to develop the complete context of this familiar passage, but suffice to say, Paul could not have been suggesting that Sabbath keeping is optional because the Torah does not present Sabbath keeping as optional for Israel. Read Exodus 31.16. That's why I chose that portion in our uh, liturgy this, uh, this evening, right? On the contrary, Sabbath is the very sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It's like the very wedding ring. It is the very wedding ring between God and His bride Israel. The passage is most likely, the passage here in Romans 14, is most likely comparing fast days with non-fast days. And the fact that those who fast consider that day as special, whereas those who are not fasting on that day do not consider that fast day special. That's likely the context of Romans 14, especially when we get to verse 5, where it talks about one man considers one day, another considers another day, let each man be convinced in his own mind. I'm paraphrasing the verse there. Let's continue reading my answer. Moreover, the larger context of, of Romans 14 even goes on to teach that God accepts each person's devotional behavior since it is done in service to the very same God as each man's counterpart. This means that even if Paul were referring to Sabbath, at the very least, no one can judge one's brother based on keeping or not keeping. There's so much more to this passage, but I will leave off here for now. Okay, that's the commentary. Let me kind of flesh it out a little bit if it isn't self-explanatory. Essentially, in, Christ, in standard Christian thought, in Christian circles, we have Romans 14 uh, being presented to, say, Messianics who are keeping Torah, keeping Sabbath to the best of their ability. We have your average Christian pastor presenting this passage in Romans 14. Specifically, let me pull up Romans 14. Uh, let's see, it's probably Romans 14. Let me pull it up on my online Bible here. I'll just read it out of David Stern's version again, since I've got that already opened on my computer. Romans 14, verse 5 is the verse that really um, that really is presented as an effort to challenge Sabbath keeping. Verse 5 says, One person considers some days more holy than others, while someone else regards them as being alike. What is important is for each to be fully convinced in his own mind. All right. So as we go back to my Galatians commentary here, question seven, essentially, I hear many pastors challenging me as a Torah keeper, as a Messianic Jew, saying, Ariel, that's fine for you to keep Sabbaths. It's fine for you to recognize Seventh-day Sabbath keeping. But what Paul told me in Romans 14.5 is that you can consider me, Ariel, you can consider Roman, I'm sorry, you can consider Sabbath keeping as special for you, but I don't have to necessarily consider it special for me. Instead, what Paul is giving me is the freedom to choose either Sabbath keeping or Sunday keeping. And I have chosen to keep Sunday keeping instead of Sabbath keeping. In fact, I don't think that one day is really special at all. I think all days are special. I simply choose to worship on Seventh day, I'm sorry, on the set, uh, Sunday, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's kind of how the general discussion goes. On the one hand, it is true that Paul is um, 
it is true that, uh, how do I say this carefully? It is true that using Romans 14, that Paul is teaching the equality of one day versus another day. But the question is, is that day the Sabbath? And that's really the, the, the issue. If we can identify what day he's referring to in the passage, then we'll have a better understanding of the passage. And so what I said is that context is king. Context determines the um, meaning of any given passage. And if you read the, the, the chapter as a whole, you're going to find that the, the chapter centers on these uh, differences between these two groups of individuals. We have the group called the weak and the group called the strong. And without getting into a, dis uh, a heated discussion of who the strong and the weak are, suffice to say, because I, my view of who the weak and the strong are is different from who, the traditional Christian view, but suffice to say, Paul is um, saying that the, their views are both acceptable before God. And in the context of these views that neither one is right or wrong in this discussion in Romans 14, both of these two groups um, stand in uh, in light of God's truth. Both of them stand in, in the sight of God and are both acceptable to God for, for their practices, for their mode of worship, for their... Um, for their scruples, for their um, for their exacting of keeping Torah commands or not keeping them per se. What what I'm trying to say is that um, the view that teaches that Romans 14:5 is referring to the Sabbath day is probably unlikely because that would make the day of Sabbath as an optional commandment rather than the way that the Torah describes Sabbath-keeping. It's not optionally given to Israel. God doesn't say, Israel, if you decide to keep the Sabbath, if you think this is a novel idea, if it's something that you feel that warrants your attention, would you please consider keeping my Sabbath among all the other special days that I allow you to keep? Would you also consider bringing the Sabbath into your, um, into your days of importance? That's not how the Torah presents the Sabbath. Instead, it doesn't take... A seminarian to read through the, the the Torah, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and discover that the Sabbath is of importance. It is a set apart day. It's special. That's why I read the why I read the Genesis passage, as well as the Exodus passage. It is a day that God sanctified. It is a day that God set apart. It is a not. It is not a man made, designated holy day. It is a God declared holy day. And therefore, it's wrong to assume that Paul would come along and and rob God of that of of that um authority. Only God has the authority to declare the Sabbath day holy or not. Only God has the authority to relax the Sabbath day if possible, if if that were even happening, which I don't believe it is. So to make Romans chapter four speaking of the Sabbath is to do damage not only to the context of the bulk of the Torah the first five books of Moses, but it's also to do damage to the context of Paul's writings here in Galatians and Romans chapter 14, because it doesn't fit the context that he would be speaking of the Sabbath day. One person considers some days more holy, while someone else regards them as all being alike. Now that first part of the verse might be true. It might be true that if I were to take an average survey and, and just say, hey, do you think the Sabbath is special? And the, the average person on the street might say, seventh day Sabbath? Nah, it's not special to me. It's true that Paul might be describing um, people's feelings. 
But when he says what's more important is for each to be fully convinced in his mind, allowing uh, for a tra translation or an interpretation that um, encourages people to kind of pick and choose what parts of Torah are um, relevant, what parts of Torah are important, what parts of Torah are are uh, to be considered more uh how do I say this? What parts of Torah did be considered relevant in their lives? The Bible essentially is a covenant, and I'm sorry, the, the 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 relationship in the Bible that's described is in fact a covenant. And the Bible comes along and gives us commandments, imperatives. They are not, in fact, the New Testament contains hundreds of these as well, thousands of them. The the imperatives of the Bible are not optional. You know, the commandment in in uh, in the New Testament that says, uh, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right? Uh, that's in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, I believe. To be filled with the Spirit is not optional for a Christian. It's a commandment. You know, husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husbands. Those aren't optional. Those are commandments. Children obey your, Lord, obey your parents and the Lord. Those aren't optional. Those are commandments. Those are imperatives, right? I think every Christian would agree. And so the Bible is full of imperatives. It's full of commandments. It's not full of options. God doesn't give us options. It doesn't say, gee, I hope you guys are convinced that these are good things to do. Therefore, please implement them. So that's all I really want to say about uh, question number seven. I think you guys are getting my point. Let's move on to question number eight. Question, explain Colossians 2.16. Answer, the verse reads, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The traditional, that's uh, end quote, that's the um, passage as it reads out of the ESV. Uh, the traditional interpretation of this passage suggests a scenario. This is, I'm going to describe the, the first primary um, way of reading this passage, and then I'll describe the way I understand the passage. Um, the traditional interpretation of this passage suggests a scenario where a first century Torah teacher, I'm sorry, a first century Torah observant believer is passing judgment on a non-Torah observant believer for not keeping the Torah. However, this doesn't accord with the historical context in light of what we learned in answer six above. And what did we learn in answer six? That the Judaisms of Paul's day felt that Torah-keeping didn't save them. Instead, they felt that Torah-keeping was done to maintain their place already within their place already secured by Jewish ethnicity. So, in this view from chapter 6, as I'm borrowing the theology of, 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 verse, of um, question 6, it is more likely that Paul understood that Gentile believers would be joining existing Jewish communities in his day, and that these Jewish communities would feel uncomfortable with the Gentiles keeping Torah as Gentiles, while at the same time claiming the promises of God through Yeshua. It is more likely, then, that the judgment being passed was not from Torah-observant believers down to non Torah observant believers, but was in fact the opposite. And what I mean by the opposite is that it was likely judgment was being passed from the unbelieving Jewish community 
to Torah-observant Gentile Christians for in fact keeping Torah without going through the ritual of conversion first. Remember, first century Israel believed that Israel was a Jewish-only community, and they believed that by virtue of being Jewish-only, there were no Gentiles who were allowed to keep Torah, at least in a covenantal, man- in a covenantal manner, meaning uh, even the parts of Torah that they were attracted to before they converted were only for the purpose of, of uh, gaining them entrance into the Jewish community in the end. So in the end, we have a policy that teaches Jewish-only Israel, and the only way for a Gentile to find his place permanently within the covenant, that is, within their limited scope or their limited view of things, the unbelieving Jewish community imposed a proselyte conversion ceremony on the Gentiles and said, if you want to keep Torah along with us, if you want to keep the badges of identification, if you want to walk into the works of the law, you have to convert, become a Jew first, let us legally recognize your position within the community as a legally recognized Jew. Once you pass that entry point, once you cross over, then the rest of the Torah and the blessings of the covenant are handed to you. In essence, the membership packet is given to you only after you become a member, but not before. So let me finish my um, answer here. In a word, it is historically tenable that unbelieving Israel became jealous and outraged at Paul's teachings at the newly-fledged Gentile inclusion into Israel via association with a slain Jewish martyr sans circumcision, that is, minus circumcision. Okay, let's flesh out this answer. Essentially, the way I see it is we have kind of a scenario. Let me um, describe three people for you. We have person A, person B, and a pastor. And person A is a messianic person. What I mean by messianic is they espouse to the Sabbaths, the dietary laws, the festivals. In a word, they look Jewish. Now, they don't have to be Jewish. They could be Jewish, or they could be what we might describe as a messianic Gentile. But either way, the the, the buzz term messianic is usually what's um, thrown around today to describe someone of this particular persuasion, someone who's um, returning to the roots of their faith, the roots of the Hebraic faith, etc., uh, etc. Et so we have person A is a messianic, if you allow me to use that term. Person B is a standard Christian, traditional Christian. Now, if you've noticed right away, both person A and person B are both Christian. It's just I'm differentiating between the person A and person B in the regards to one has a semblance of Torah observance that looks like things Jewish, meaning Sabbath, kosher, festival, etc., whereas person B, the standard Christian, is what you might describe by today's standards as someone who worships on Sunday, doesn't keep Sabbath, that is, uh, is okay with eating pork, shrimp, um, ham, lobster, things like that, doesn't keep kosher, and uh, keeps the traditional Christian festivals, Christmas, Easter, things like that. Um, So that's person B. And standing in front of them, uh, to mediate between them, is a pastor. And so using today's Christian interpretations of this passage, what we have is we have the pastor playing the part of Paul. And we have, again, this is standard Christian interpretation of the passage. We basically have the person A observing that person B, the Messianic observing that the Christian doesn't keep the Torah the way that the Messianic does. The, me- the Messianic is 
confused why the Christian doesn't want to keep the Torah when the when the Messianic believes that the Torah wasn't done away with. The Messianic believes that Christ didn't fulfill the Torah in a way such such as so as to remove its relevance in our lives. Uh, person A, the Messianic believes that Paul would agree with keeping Torah because Paul himself was a lifelong Jew, etc., etc. So person A is judging person B for not keeping the Torah the way that person A believes they should be keeping it. In other words, why this is the this is the verb words that come out of person A's mouth. Why are you still keeping those pagan holidays? Why are you still associating with those things that um that smack of 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 uh, syncretism? Uh, why are you not yet coming into the fullness of your walk in Christ by embracing the Hebraic lifestyle? So person A is judging person B, and person B, in his hapless defense, comes running to the pastor, which is the Paul stand-in, right? The pastor is playing the pace of Paul. And out of the mouth of the pastor comes the words that we read in our verse, where it says, um, don't let anyone judge you for by, uh, uh, in, let me read the verse again. Uh, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Uh, end quote. And the Colossians 2.16 passage coming out of the words of the pastor, which are Paul's words, are directed towards person B, the Christian, who feels that they are being judged by person A, the Messianic. So therefore, the pastor is going to counsel He's going to uh, comfort the Christian by saying that the Messianic person cannot judge the Christian for not keeping the Torah. And the reason the Messianic cannot judge the Christian for not keeping the Torah the way that the Messianic's keeping, the reason the, 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 the no judgment can take place is because Paul explains in Colossians 2.16 that no one can pass judgment on you in a question of these things, food or drink, or regards to festival Sabbaths, etc. And I find it ironic that the, um, the standard assumption is that, the, that Paul is saying that the judgment that, that people can't pass is in not doing the Torah, as if that's the, that was the norm in first century circles. However, that's where the rub lies. That's where the challenge is. Is if we peel back history and go back to the first century setting, what we don't find is that Gentiles were trying to stay away from the Torah initially. Instead, we find the opposite. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that when the explosion at Shavuot, Acts chapter 2 and onward, when the explosion of the Spirit and the Torah went forth from Jerusalem as an, like, kind of like an epicenter, like a bomb going off, and it started permeating throughout the rest of the Middle East there, going to the surrounding um, cities and the surrounding um, uh, people groups and the surrounding countries eventually, as the disciples took the good news from Jerusalem and spread outward, just like the Master told them to do near the end of the Gospels, you know, uh, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. That's what they were doing as they were empowered by the Ruach to do so. We find that as the Jewish believers who were Torah observant were encountering Gentiles who didn't know Torah and didn't know Messiah, as the Gentiles took on faith in Yeshua, or even before they took on faith in Yeshua, those Gentiles were often found in the synagogues, learning Torah, as it were, kind of becoming 
um, indoctrinated to the things of Torah, becoming familiar with the monotheistic beliefs of the Jewish people. In other words, they were religion shopping, right? They were in the synagogues, and the Jewish people, the rabbis or the leaders of the synagogue, were allowing the Jewish these Gentiles to come in and visit them as visitors because they realized that these Gentile visitors were prospective proselytes. They were potential Jewish members to their community. They were, um, they were supporters. They were potential supporters. I mean, some of these Gentiles were wealthy. And so it's not unthinkable that the Gentiles coming into the Jewish community would have been familiar with Torah already. Certain parts of Torah, that is. You know, the, the, at least the what we call the vigil, visible badges of the Jewish community, that is the, um, the Sabbath-keeping, the dietary issues, some of the primary holiness issues, uh, the feast days. These are what we might call the more visible primary um, badges to the Jewish community would have already been familiar to the Gentiles who were joining Israel. Uh, even as proselytes. But when the Jewish believers encountered these Gentile, um, these Gentile uh, visitors to the synagogue, then once these Gentiles accepted faith in Yeshua, there wasn't a big push from the Jewish side, from the Jewish believer side, to stop keeping Torah. In fact, history tells us that the Gentile Christians were continuing to keep Torah, much to the consternation of the Gentile leaders who chose not to keep Torah. So, you know, by the about 100 or 200 years into the um, Jesus movement, into the uh, first few centuries, we find Gentile leaders trying to get their, their Gentile members to stop keeping Torah, their Christians to stop following after the Jewish feasts. This is recorded in the Church Fathers, in the patristic writings that are early, very early. You know, Eusebius and, and Ignatius and um, Justin Martyr and, and, and uh, uh, Marcion, and these early church writings will record that the Christians of the first century were nearly indistinguishable from their Jewish Christian counterparts in practices of Torah. So, when we have a community that we're describing, the Torah community of the first century, a community, a small group, the, fir- the group of what we now call the Way, the group of Christians, the group of first century Christians, which was made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, the groups that, Paul, that were reading Paul's letters and receiving them as words of Scripture, the, word, the authoritative words of God, right? We're not talking about the unsaved Jewish synagogue. We're not talking about the world at large, the world in general, the pagan temples. We're not talking about those groups. We're talking about the, Ju- the Torah communities, the Christian communities, if I can use the word Christian anachronistically. We're talking about the first century communities that were made up of Jews and Gentiles that were believers. Those groups of people were Torah observant. They were, they were Torah compliant. They were at least Torah respectful, if not Torah observant. Right, The Jews naturally kept Torah because that was part of their heritage. And the Gentiles coming into the group were exposed to Torah sufficiently to warrant their interest in Torah, or or at least their high regard and respect for Torah. So in that social setting, we probably have the... um, we likely have the this small remnant group, which is remnant Israel that I'm describing, 
existing underneath the larger umbrella called Judaism, existing within the umbrella called Judaism, therefore falling under a measured amount of authority from the Jewish synagogue, the unbelieving Jewish synagogue. Remember, there were no first century First Baptist churches on the corner. There were no uh, um, Catholic cathedrals uh, around the, the corner, around the street uh, in the first century. It was either the Jewish synagogue or the Temple of Diana. You either had the Jewish synagogue or the pagan temples. Make your choice. Or you had small home groups that were starting to form, and but those small home groups still um, took their larger authoritative halakha, their larger um, uh, governance from parts of mainstream Jewish leadership, mainstream Jewish synagogues, mainstream Jewish communities. So it's within that kind of that pressure cooker where you have these smaller communities seeking to gain their own legitimacy um, uh, within the larger group. In other words, you have the smaller um, believing Jews and Gentiles trying to exist alongside the larger unsaved Jews and Gentiles who were in the synagogues. And and in, in, in those settings, you're going to have some clashes. And the clashes were likely that the unsaved Jewish synagogue was looking negatively at these small Christian groups, these subgroups. And their negative view was, hey, you Gentiles have no legitimacy to keep Torah. That's a Jewish-only document. How dare you try to claim that that document is yours, that those promises are yours, that those commandments are yours. You have no right to keep the Sabbath. You have no right to keep uh, kosher. You have no right to claim the festivals as your own. You have no right to claim the covenants and the fathers as yours. Those are ours because we're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Sound familiar? So that is likely the historical context of Paul's passage here in Colossians. And so when he says, don't let anyone ju- pass judgment on you, he is speaking the recipients of the letter are the same group that the Christians claim them to be. That is, they are the smaller Christian subgroups that exist, that are existing within the larger Jewish community. But instead of passing judgment for trying to, I'm sorry, instead of passing judgment for not keeping Sabbath or kosher, like I described in, in the standard Christian view, I believe that Paul is telling them, don't worry about people passing judgment on you for keeping them. And why would Paul tell them that they don't have to worry about keeping them, that they don't have to worry about the judgment being passed on them? Because Paul goes to great pains to explain in the rest of his letters, and indeed in the other parts of Galatians, that the Gentiles and Jews are equal co-participants in the covenants of God, in the covenants spelled out to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, handed down through Moshe, and mediated by Yeshua. In other words, as he's going to go on to explain in Ephesians, Paul wants the Gentiles to understand that they are fellow heirs with the covenants of promise given to Israel. That the Gentiles who have been grafted into Israel, using the Romans 11 olive tree analogy, the Gentiles who have been grafted into remnant Israel are as much a part of Israel as the natural remnant who also believes in Messiah. Jewish people who believe in Messiah are as much genuine covenant members, lasting covenant members, 
as the Gentiles who believe in Messiah. They are both equal. That is the point that Paul's going to go to great lengths to teach throughout his letters. And it is a central, core, foundational piece of his teachings that Jews and Gentiles in Messiah are equal to one another. They don't lose their distinctives as Jews and Gentiles. They don't cease being Jews and Gentiles any more than they cease being male and female, slave and free. Rather, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, as one pastor would say, meaning in Messiah there is no prerequisite to come to him. There's no prerequisite that you have to be Jewish or Gentile first. And then after you come to Messiah, you don't have to lose your distinctive. In fact, Paul goes on to say later on, I think it's in uh, Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians, that if you came to Messiah as a Jew, don't stop being a Jew. If you came to Messiah as a Gentile, don't stop being a Gentile. In other words, the verse talks about where were you circumcised when you're called? Don't seek to remove your circumcision. Were you uncircumcised when you were called? Don't seek to become circumcised. Don't take on Jewish identity after you become a believer. And don't lose your Jewish identity after you come to become a believer either. So the point I'm trying to make is Torah observance is not something that you either that you give up once you become a Christian, that once you become a believer. Rather, it's something that you embrace because it's now written on your heart. So I think that's a better way to explain Colossians 16. In these last four minutes, let me explain Galatians 5. The question, let me just read it. I think it's self-explanatory. Question 9. Doesn't Paul explicitly say in Galatians 5 that the law is bondage? Answer. Read read answer 6 above and then read Galatians again. We're going to get a chance to do that later on, so I won't expound on that now. Context shows that Paul is combating ethnic-driven corporate righteousness and ostensible covenant membership based on the social expectation and maintenance of law-keeping. The bondage of chapter 5, verse 1 in Galatians, is spiritual bondage spelled out for any believer who might wish to return to a first-century Jewish worldview of corporate-slash-individual salvation and sanctification based on group membership and maintenance of Torah commands. Recall that in covenantal gnomism, one, quote, gets in, unquote, by belonging to the group that is being legally born with or married into Jewish identity or conversion to the legal status of Jewish. And one, quote, stays in, end quote, by keeping Torah. Remind yourself that neither of these two, quote, gets in, stays in, end quote, facts are true in God's courtroom. Neither of these are true, right? You don't get in and stay in by keeping Torah. Remind yourself that. Thus, Paul is warning the genuine Galatian believers that to, quote, get in, end quote, uh, one places his trust in Yeshua, and that to, quote, stay in, end quote, one waits for the hope of righteousness by faith. The debt to the whole law of verse 3 of Galatians chapter 5, verse 3. The debt to the whole law is a debt to do whatever ethnocentric Jewish conversion policy the hapless Gentile converts would submit themselves to should they venture down that bondage-laden path, a debt that surely excluded group membership and to our observance for non-Jews. Justification by law in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 5 
means ostensible justification by the policy that teaches a, quote, Jewish-only Israel, end quote. So, we're uh, in the uh, middle of question nine, if you look at your screen, and we're, this is really the last question that we're going to talk about tonight. We looked at question seven, eight, and now we're at question nine, and we'll pick up question ten next week. So basically, um, I think I'll go just a little bit longer uh, on this question. Uh, so if you'll permit me, I'll just uh, elaborate on it a little bit, and then I'll move into the 15-minute Q&A session for those who are, are in the classroom live tonight. The question, doesn't Paul explicitly say in Galatians 5 that the law is bondage? The context of the answer that I provided is that Paul could not have thought that keeping the Torah was bondage, the way standard Christian church the way traditional Christian parlance teaches it. And the way we know that Paul could not have thought that, uh, could not have held that view of Torah is if we simply go back and read the Torah for ourselves, the way that Moses describes keeping Torah in the Torah. If you read the way the commandments are given to Israel throughout the book of Torah, they don't hint of, <clears throat> they don't hint of bondage. What is more, if you continue to corroborate that view of Torah with the rest of Paul's writings, particularly, say, Romans chapter 7, um, where Paul talks about that uh, the, the law is holy, just, and good. How can Paul say that the, that the Torah is holy and that the commandment is holy, just, and good, or righteous? How can he say those things about the Torah and yet at the same time describe the Torah as bondage? Some would say, well, he can describe the Torah as bondage because it's bondage if you're trying to keep it perfectly. And God already knows that no one can keep it perfectly. I'm speaking as a traditional Christian. God knows that no one can keep it perfectly, and therefore if you try to perfectly keep Torah, you fall into bondage and legalism. And the only way out of that trap of bondage and legalism of trying to keep the Torah perfectly, the only way out of that is to give up trying to keep Torah altogether and instead fall on the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Yeshua and then be set free in Messiah. And then through your... 2020 hindsight realized that, wow, it was bondage that I was trying to keep the Torah. When I was unsaved, trying to keep God's law to earn God's righteousness, to earn God's favor, that's bondage. Now, this is a little difficult to sort out because there are truths within the traditional Christian view that I don't want to jettison. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is true that before you come to Messiah, that any amount of trying to earn God's favor is bondage. However, that's not the bondage that Paul's talking about here. Um, well, let me say it this way. It is true that if you're unsaved and you try to approach God any way outside of Messiah, that that is bondage. And that is a bondage that Paul would agree with. That is a bondage he wants you to avoid. But more to the context. The context of what Paul's trying to say in Galatians chapter 5, the, the, the context of his recipients, the, the, those who are reading the letter, if you put yourself in the position of the, of the standard Gentile who was joining a Jewish community, remember, the Torah communities of Paul's day were not necessarily Christian in, distinctive, in distinction to Jewish. More, more accurately, they were Jewish, yet Christian as well, meaning the communities of Paul's day that Paul was writing to were faith communities. They were Jewish communities who had trusted in Jesus, they who had, who had um, expressed their faith in Yeshua. And so they were still Jewish, 
in their practice. They were Jewish in their in their outlook. They were Jewish in their uh, uh, in their tradition. They were Jewish in their respect towards Torah. In that sense, they were Jewish. Um, to be sure, they were comprised of many Jews and and many Gentiles, but but all believing in Yeshua, or at least espousing to believe in Yeshua. When Paul starts addressing these Gentiles and telling them that to go back under the law is bondage, the law he's referring to must naturally refer to the, the policy belief that if you are not Jewish, you don't have genuine covenant membership in Israel yet. Meaning, the prevailing Jewish views held in Paul's day, but not by Paul himself. The traditional view within the unbelieving Jewish communities of Paul's day was that the Torah was a Jewish-only document, and that if a Gentile wanted to embrace the Torah as their lifestyle, they had to take on legal Jewish status first. That was what we call the proselyte ceremony that was being presented. And in Paul's writings, this, um, this is articulated simply as circumcision. In other words, the, the shorthand code word circumcision is often used in Paul's writings to describe the social phenomenon of Jewish identity, whether it's natural Jewish identity that you, that you gained at birth as a Jew, or it is the achieved uh, Jewish identity that you gained as a proselyte convert to Judaism, either one. Uh, the word circumcision in Paul's writings is kind of brought forth to describe that social phenomenon. Paul is going to say to those Gentiles wishing to embrace Torah and wishing to be counted as righteous before God, he's going to say to them, if you want to receive God's righteousness, you need to fall on the mercy of Yeshua. You don't need to go through a conversion policy to do it. If you want to be counted into the group, and the group is Israel, by the way, from Paul's perspective, the spiritual group, the um, the, the lasting group that the Gentiles should be wanting to get into, is only attained by going through the doorway known as Yeshua. It is not entered through a doorway known as conversion. So Paul is going to discourage Gentiles from converting for the wrong reason. Instead, he's going to encourage them to keep Torah. He's going to encourage them to place their faith in Yeshua, albeit minus any ostensible requirement to convert to Judaism in the process. That's the better way to read Paul's letter to Galatians and specifically his view of the law as bondage. Paul didn't feel that the law excuse me. Paul didn't feel that the law was bondage. He felt that the requirement of of circumcision first, meaning the requirement of conversion prior to being counted as a genuine covenant member in Israel, he felt that that was bondage. So the policy of Jewish-only Israel, of Jewish-only Torah observance, the policy that was being um, regulated by the Judaisms of his day, Paul felt that that was bondage. And that's the bondage he doesn't want his Gentile Christian prospects to fall into. He doesn't want them to fall into that trap. That's a better way to read Galatians chapter 5. Instead of making Torah the villain of the piece, we make this um, uh, proselyte conversion policy the, the villain of the piece. We make the Jew, the, the, the policy says, that says that the Torah is a document for Jews only. We make that the villain of the piece. 
And therefore, we basically exonerate Torah. We exonerate Torah observance, as it should be. Because Paul, as I've already stated and as I'm coming full circle, Paul had high regards for Torah. He spoke highly of Torah observance and Torah relevance. Uh, remember the book of Acts, uh, particularly chapter 21, Paul returns to Jerusalem and he's got some Gentiles with him. He's met by James and some of the other leaders of the Jerusalem community. And he's on his way into the temple. And what do James and the other leaders suggest to Paul? They tell him that there's this rumor that, that Paul is no longer keeping Torah and that Paul's teaching other Jews to stop circumcising and to stop keeping the, the, the traditions. And James says, let's dispel these rumors by you, Paul, taking these men and you yourselves going along with them. And you all know this story. Uh, going with them and having yourself purified, having your head shaven, essentially a, a, a Nazarite vow that they're fulfilling. Uh, present the, sac the required sacrifices in the temple. And in doing so, your actions are going to prove louder than words. Your actions are going to prove that you are still Torah observant and that Torah is still relevant for Jews. And in fact, the writer, Luke, describes in the book of Acts, chapter 21, that there are thousands of Jews who believe in Messiah, and they are all zealous for the Torah. So in closing to question nine, um, the law that Paul is talking about being bondage is not the law of Moses per se. It is true theologically that if you're trying to keep the law because you think it'll save you, that is bondage. If you're unsaved and you think that your law keeping will earn you merit before God, that is bondage. That's spiritual bondage in your mind. That's true. And that's not primarily the bondage that Paul's talking about, although that is true theologically that Paul would um, discourage any type of meritorious system where you think law keeping will save you. It's true. However, context, historical context of Paul's writing is that the bondage that he's trying to warn the Galatians away from <clears throat> is the bondage of um, Jewish-only Israel, Jewish-only Torah-keeping, ethnic-driven covenant membership. That's the bondage he wants to warn his readers away from. So with that, let me close the commentary, give a general dismissal and prayer. And then for those of you who are in the live room, the live uh, teaching tonight, um, I'll keep the doors open for the next 10 minutes or so, and we'll allow questions and answers. You can type them into the chat window, and then I'll respond uh, by speaking, or I'll also chat with you. Uh, this is a feature that's available only to those who join the live teaching, so I encourage you, if you have friends or family member who want to um, dialogue with me on this particular topic on the book of Galatians, uh, encourage them to join the live teaching every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Um, I encourage you to visit my website at uh, tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E Torah.com. Click on the Galatians commentary link at the very top of the page and scroll down and you can find information about joining the live study. It's free uh, every Tuesday evening and we're just going to keep going until we finish the study. Could take a few months, could take a few years. By God's grace, we'll just keep going until we finish. Uh, I encourage you to join me every Tuesday evening. Let's close in prayer. Abba, we bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to study along with the students. Lord, I'm learning right along with them. I wrote the study, of course, but that doesn't mean that I have all the answers. And so I thank you, Holy Spirit, for reminding me of the words of the Master, for bringing to my recollections the things that I am earnestly seeking. For indeed, Yeshua, you have promised that you would send the Spirit to remind us of your words, and 
you are faithful to do so, and I bless you for that. I thank you for each and every student who's come out tonight. I thank you for those who are listening by way of the uh, podcast that has record, been recorded after the fact. I pray that you'll give them an opportunity to join the live study if possible so that we can grow together and share together. Lord, I, like them, am hungry for truth, and I just want to press in and, and know you more and learn of you. I seek to glorify you, and I thank you for your faithfulness even when I'm unfaithful. Bless each and every student today. Continue to be with them in their lives, in their families, in their communities. Raise them up as a light, as a witness to those around them. Raise them up as a voice of truth in this dark and evil generation. Protect them from the evil schemes of the adversary. Continue to challenge us to be filled with your spirit, for that is the only way that we can continue to be pleasing to you, putting off the flesh and putting on the Messiah. Thank you for all of your good blessings that come down to us through your words, through your promises, through the Son. For indeed, in him, all promises are yes and amen. We'll continue to bless you, Lord. Bring us back together next week. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>